pray this morning, Lord, in Jesus' name and because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the promises of your word that say that you came to set captives free. Father, I pray that the night, that the darkness would let go of hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Father, you say that it's a reality, Lord, that our inheritance as your sons and daughters, one of the things that happened to us is, is that you have transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that we no longer have to live in that darkness. And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, for every heart here that knows you as Savior. Father, I pray that they would live in that new kingdom. Lord, I pray that they would get rid of that old culture, that old way of thinking, that old way of doing things. I pray that they would put off that old way of life from that old kingdom, and that they would live new in the newness of your kingdom, Father. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just fill each heart right now, Lord, and that you would help us to believe the promises of your word. I pray this morning is that, that as we open your word, that you would renew our minds and that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we could offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual act of worship, Lord Jesus. So Father, please come and do a million things this morning that need done. But Father, we look to you for them. Our eyes are on you. We trust you and we thank you in advance for what you want to do today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you guys. If you got your Bible, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, 1 Peter chapter 5, I do think, Lord willing, uh, we will be in 1 Peter this morning and next week and then we will be done. It's been about six months that we've been walking through this book, and I thought we were going to be done by this week, but I've just been slowing down more and more every week here in chapter 5, uh, and I'm almost kind of sad to come to the end of it because I like Peter, man. I like this letter. I like what he's saying. I like thinking about him uh, as one of our leaders, one of our shepherds, shepherding us through this letter that he wrote to the church then and to the church now. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory I'm sorry, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray one more time. Father, thanks for this morning. God, we love you. Um, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you'd open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from it. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a book written back in 1986 by a guy named Robert Fulgham, Fulgham, and it was entitled, uh, it became a bestseller then, but it was entitled, All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Did anybody ever read this book? Uh, how many of you were really into reading bestsellers back in 1986? 
I was five, so I was not into reading bestsellers back then. Um, but the, the point of the book, what he, it's, just, it's a series of essays, I believe actually like 25, 25 essays. And, uh, and in the book, he, his premise is just simply that the world would be improved, that the world would be a better, a better place if adults adhered to some of the same basic rules uh, as children are taught in kindergarten, kind of some elementary principles, sharing, being kind to one another, cleaning up after yourself, living a balanced life of work and play and, and of learning. And uh, I think that the church could be a better place if we would just learn a few kind of elementary principles uh, about our enemy. Just a few things, just a few kindergarten type things that are important and that we need to understand. And we don't need to have a PhD in Satan and his schemes and the devil and all that he wants to, wants to do, but we do need to know a few elementary things, and that's primarily what Peter is going to talk to us about this morning. John, can you turn me down? I don't know. I've got a, did you guys hear an echo? I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to go on if I don't do this, but I've got like, so just a little aside, just hit pause for a second, but I've got like a bunch of like feedback up here somewhere that's like really messing with my mind right now. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but there's just a few elementary things that, uh, that I want to look at this morning and that Peter's going to tell us about the devil. And it is interesting to me that in this discourse, in this letter that Peter has given us on suffering, that it is not till now, till the very end of the letter, and that for all but just simply one verse, that Peter finally mentions Satan. And I find that interesting because many times when I hear Christians talk about suffering, when I begin to talk about suffering, we immediately run to this attack of the devil. And hear me, as we're going to see this morning, it, it probably is, but yet it is so important that we put the devil in his place. And what Peter has done here throughout the, the letter is remind us, um, first and foremost, of who we are in Christ, of all that Christ has done for us, um, of all that God says that is now true about us, about this, this new nature, this new identity, this new life that we now have in him. And now here at the end of the letter, in the midst of all that glorious context of all that he says about us, he is going to talk about Satan. And he's going to say a lot, actually. There's a lot in here. There's a lot in this one little verse that we get about him. Yet it's so important to frame what we know about him in the context of everything else that Peter has already talked about. And so it's pretty simple this morning, kind of what Peter lays out here, the flow of thought. It's just simply the devil's plan and his person. In other words, what he's doing and who he is. And then also the Christian's response and God's, and God's promises. And we'll just work our way through that. But here's first of all where we need to go and where we're going to spend most of our time so that we understand this, guys, is that the devil has a plan. The devil is a very real spiritual being, and he has a plan. And here's his plan in a nutshell. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour you. Now, devour is a very graphic term, and we'll look at this more here, but, you know, he's described in verse 8 as a lion, so devour makes sense. But he wants to destroy you, but not just you. He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to devour your faith. He wants to get you to not believe in God. 
because that is where that is where our strength that's where our power lies first john chapter 5 says for everyone who has been born of god overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world even our faith our faith in first thessalonians chapter 3 paul's writing to the thessalonian church and in this letter he was only with the thessalonian church for about three weeks before he got ran out of town by an angry mob, and then he writes this letter back from the next city he gets to, back to Thessalonica. And so they were just, you know, babies in Christ, and then he had to flee because some people were trying to get him. And in the letter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. So he sent this letter back to them. He says, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. I don't miss it. He said, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What was Paul concerned that the tempter or the devil, our adversary, what was he concerned that he was going after? Their faith, their trust, their trust in God. The Bible says, Jesus said this in John 10.10, 10, that the devil comes, the enemy, to, to steal, to kill, and to destroy and so when I said that, you know, there's just some very elementary kindergarten level stuff that we need to know about the devil. It, we don't need to know a ton, of, a ton of stuff, but what we do know, the, the little bit that we do know, is important because, guys, he wants to take you out. He wants to take you out. He's not playing games. And so that's his plan. It's pretty simple. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your faith, specifically. Here's how he does that, and we're given some clues in the text. Look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. We'll come back to that. Then he says, your adversary. Uh, it's, if you've got the ESV, it says adversary. It could also say um, enemy. It's probably the more literal translation. But it's very literally one who opposes. One who opposes. Like, he by very nature exists to oppose you. He is never on your team, ever. Do you guys have that person in your life that like, when you're talking about doing something new, like they're always just playing devil's advocate, you know? We use that term. Oh, I'm just, I just want to play devil's advocate, you know? And you kind of get tired of that person. Maybe that's why you're like, are you on his team? You know, like why are you, why are you doing this? But they're just constantly like opposed, you know, to what, to what you're saying. And that's, who he is. He stands to oppose you. It's in his nature to oppose you and to oppose the plans of God in and around your life. He's also called then your adversary the devil. Devil literally means slanderer or accuser. So now we're beginning to build this out. You have this one who by his very nature exists all the time to oppose you and one of the ways that he opposes you is he slanders you. He accuses you. He's constantly against you, and what he wants to do is bring accusation. This is why, guys, many times, and again, sometimes it's, it's, it's our flesh, it's, that, it's from that old, that kingdom of darkness that we once lived in, and all those negative thought patterns, it's, it's, it's in us, but then you, it's also, this enemy is also outside of us. And there are these negative thought patterns of, I'm stupid, I'm ugly. I'll never be good enough. I'll never be whatever enough. And we're constantly playing this stuff. 
in our minds all day. And again, sometimes those just become ruts in our minds. That's why the Bible says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. But even when we're trying to renew our mind, why sometimes we'll have a hard time is because there's an enemy. There is the devil and his demons, Satan and all his cohorts that exist to kind of put these thoughts into our mind and to get us to believe them. He is bringing accusation. This is why it's important that we understand that what Jesus said about him Again, in John chapter 10, after he you know, said that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, he, he says he, he was a liar from the beginning. When he, I love this little line. Jesus says, when, when he lies, he speaks his native language. In other words, he, he can't not lie. He's constantly lying. And when you guys have these negative thought patterns, you need to begin to stop and ask yourself, where is this coming from? Where is this coming from? You guys have heard me, you know, quote this line from Paul David Tripp uh, many times. I love it, but he says, you know, nobody is more important, nobody is more influential in your own life than you are because nobody talks to you more than you do, right? And again, sometimes this is our, our old way of thinking, our old thought patterns, but then right along with it is the devil. He's a real spiritual being that opposes you, and one of the ways he does this is by bringing accusation by slandering you. And man, he, he is living on purpose. He lives his life, the spiritual life that he's been given until he's going to be destroyed one day in the lake of fires, the Bible says in the book of Revelation, forever. The smoke of his torment will one day go up forever and ever, it says in the book of Revelation. But he prowls, I love that word here, he prowls and he is seeking. He is seeking someone to devour. Um, he's not playing games. He's not playing games, folks. And we need, to be, we need to be aware of his schemes. And again, the primary plan that he's trying to fulfill is to destroy your faith. And so I just want to pause right now. I just want you to think. I want you to think about the last 24 hours of your life. Were there any times in the last 24 hours when you were discouraged or when you felt kind of beaten up? Anybody? Maybe everybody's had a good Saturday. I hope you had a good Saturday, but maybe. In the last 24 hours, maybe even this morning, that you were discouraged, that you were afraid, that you felt overwhelmed. Maybe you didn't do this, and this is why we get into these ruts and we get stuck there, as we don't think about it. We don't think about where those thoughts are coming from. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. Many times when they just come out of nowhere, it's because the devil is lurking around, lurking around, and he's seeking to devour you. Now, again, he, it says that he's seeking someone to devour, and in this text, what's interesting about this is he's compared to an animal. He's compared to a lion, a roaring, a roaring lion. And again, throughout the book of 1 Peter, the primary theme throughout the book has been, has been suffering. And there's two primary ways in which, in which the devil works. One is that he's a roaring lion, and I would argue that the reason Peter uses that image here is because suffering is like him roaring in our life. Suffering is the overt attack. Suffering, like if you guys are suffering, if you're, let's just say you're in physical pain, any sort of pain, but take physical pain for example. When you're, when you're in physical pain, it's loud, isn't it? Like you know that you're in pain. You know that you're hurting. 
it's loud, it's in your face, and you're like, ouch, this hurts. This does not feel good. And that's one way that the devil works sometimes is through suffering, through difficulty. It's loud, it's in our face, we're intimidated, we're scared. But what's interesting, if we just zoom out of the book of 1 Peter for a little bit and just do a really quick survey of the entire Bible, what's another animal that he's compared to? Remember in the garden in Genesis? What does he first appear as? A snake. So you've got a lion, you've got a snake. You've got these two beings that are very different, right? One is big, one is intimidating, one is loud. If you see it, you just you, you want to run. But the other's sneaky. And he just slithers through the grass. And with his forked tongue, he speaks lies, whispers lies into your ear. And I say this because, guys, the devil is a master of disguise. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 says, And it is no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, that if we were to see him with our physical eyes, we would be amazed by his beauty, but at the core, he would be absolutely rotten. But not just that he's darkness and he appears good sometimes, but that he can also go to these two extremes. When you think about the animal kingdom, the, a lion, but also, but also a serpent. I just want you to think about, a little bit like over the last 24 hours, if you were discouraged, was it because he was roaring was it because he was in your face? Was it because the suffering, the pain, the fear of that and what was maybe going to happen or the uncertainty of what was going to happen was coming at you and you caved into it? Or was it because he slithered up beside you? And he said, just like what he said in the Garden of Eden, oh, did, did God really say? You guys ever notice that that's the first words that he ever speaks in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3? Did, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? See, that's what he's constantly going after. He's attacking the word of God. That's why I said that he ultimately wants to, wants to attack our faith. And there's an important connection here that I want you to see in the context, okay? And to nuance this a little bit so that, again, the, the Bible also says that we are not to be ignorant of his schemes, okay? And ultimately, the scheme that he's after what he's scheming to do is to destroy your faith. But I want you to see here, okay, and I'm going to give the devil some props for just a second, okay, because I believe the Bible does. I want to speak of him too highly, but he's, he's very smart. Did you know that? He's very, 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 very smart. And his plan is absolutely genius. Because in attacking our faith, what he ultimately wants us to do is to lose trust in God but when we lose trust in God, when we don't have faith in God, it is an act of pride. Did you know that? So all saving faith, any faith that saves, any faith that, that is like true, like Jesus talked about, true mustard seed faith, that if you have it, you can speak to this mountain, you know, be picked up and cast into the midst of the sea. A any true faith in the biblical sense of the word has to be accompanied by humility. So the Bible says in, in the book of James, he says, you believe that God is one? And James is talking here in the context about how faith without works is dead. He goes, oh, you believe that God is one? He's like, well, good for you. Even the demons believe and they tremble and they shudder. So there's a sense in which James says that even the demons have faith, even the demons believe in God, but it's not a saving faith. Are you following me? 
It's not a faith that is accompanied by humility. It is not a faith that is accompanied by humility that says, God, whatever you need to do, God, I trust you, and throws itself down at God's feet and says, God, I I want you, I need you, looks away from yourself, looks away from your own efforts, and looks to him, looks to him to save you. So are you you with me? Are you following my logic so far, okay? There's a point coming, I promise. That all true saving faith that the devil wants to destroy in the lives of believers is also accompanied by humility. Now, for those of you that were here last week and looked at this text, why is it so genius of him to go after our faith that, of course, uh, as I just said, is, is accompanied by humility? Because what does God do to those who are not humble. Do you remember? He opposes them. So again, don't, and I'm going back here because I want us to get the context and the flow of thought. Just jump back with me up into the middle of verse five and let me read it again. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because if he can get you to lose faith in God, and faith is dependence, it's humble dependence upon God, and he can get, begin to, to get, and if he can get you to begin to trust in yourself and in your own resources, now you're no longer walking in humility, and now he actually has God, in a sense, opposing you. And so his plan is genius. But I want to remind you that God also opposed Satan, and this is exactly what God had kicked out of heaven. I don't know if you guys have ever read Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 16. Uh, it's kind of a prophetic oracle, oracle uh, given to a specific king in that day, but almost every theologian admits that this is attributed to also Satan, kind of which was in this earthly king at the time. Um, and I want to read it for you, Isaiah chapter 14, and I believe, again, what I'm saying is this is describing the devil, who at one time was the most glorious of all of God's angels. Uh, I believe he was the worship leader in heaven. Um, and here's what it says, Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star. Again, Lucifer means shining one, his original name. O day star, son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Verse 13, you said in your heart, now listen, speaking this, this is what the devil said. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's what he said in his heart. And that's what got him kicked out of heaven as it continues. He says, but you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble and who shook kingdoms? Five times in, those two, ver- in two of those verses, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. So very practically speaking, how much have you been saying, I will, lately? I will do this. I will do that. I will conquer this. I will defeat this. I will fix this. I will take care of this problem. Whatever it might be. 
And I say this in love because maybe, maybe, maybe you might have believed a lie that said your faith in God is not sufficient. And that now you're saying, I will, I, I got to handle this, I got to take care of it. And it could be a sign of pride and, and a sign that you're no longer trusting in God and in his promises and who he says he is. Um, and again, going back in the context, verse 7, he, he, he talks about not being anxious, but he does want us to be alert. So at the beginning of verse 8 here, in dealing with the devil and his schemes, we're to be sober-minded and watchful. Did you guys ever play like capture the flag or something when you were little? Yeah? And like sometimes we would go and you'd have to, you know, one team would have their flag over here, another team would have their flag over here, and you know, you would have a team and you would go over and try to capture the person's flags, but we would always have like a lookout. We would have somebody guarding our flag over here, so in case the other team came and tried to get our flag. And that lookout was to be, as he says here in verse 8, sober-minded and watchful. Okay? Um, sober-minded, that's the opposite of being drunk. Okay? Drunk people don't make good lookouts. Not that any of us were drinking as kids playing capture the flag. Don't, don't, don't mix the metaphors here, okay? It wasn't, I wasn't that gangster growing up, all right? Um, <laughs> but the idea here is that you're not under the influence of anything else and so that you're able to be alert, that you're able to see. And guys, are you under the influence of anything else this morning that's causing you to not be aware of the devil's schemes in your life? And again, I'm not even talking about alcohol. I mean, it, it could be, I guess, but that, I'm just talking about like what else, what other worldly thinking, whatever, uh, what other cares of this world are influencing your heart and mind so that you're not sober, you're not spiritually alert, and the devil is prowl, prowling, roaring, maybe slithering, whatever, whatever ever form he's taking, but he's but he's coming to take you out. And uh, part of becoming mature, guys, again, is not being, is not being anxious about this, because he says in verse 7 he doesn't want us to be anxious, but it does mean being, being alert. It does mean being alert. Again, I'm helping uh, Chad host that we're coaching eighth grade boys basketball team at Highland this year. You know, one of the things with kids at that age as they're, as they're getting older is it's you're, you're trying to get rid of their anxiety. Like, you don't want them to go out there and play and be nervous. At the same time, you do want them to be alert, right? So sometimes they're so nervous, like they don't know what to do, they freeze, they forget to run a play, or they're just, you know, they, they just stand with it rather than, you know, being alert and, and attacking the defender or whatever, if they've got the ball. Um, and I was thinking, just in the Christian life, it's the same way. Part of becoming mature is, like I'm not talking about, you know, the devil being a lion or being a snake just so that it gives us anxiety. No, God wants us to be at peace, but he does want us to be alert. And part of Christian maturity is that, yeah, we're not, we're not scared, we ain't scared, we're not afraid, but we are awake. We're woke up. And are we, are we awake this morning? And so the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. What are we to do? Again, um, it's pretty simple. Verse 9, resist him. Resist him. Resist him. Fight. Don't give up. And how do we fight? 
firm in our faith. Why do we fight firm in our faith? Because our faith is the very thing that he's trying to destroy. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Everybody say that with me. Firm in your faith. One more time. Firm in your faith. Resist him. Firm in your faith. I want to read for you a little bit of a lengthy passage from the book of Job. And again, speaking to this issue of him trying to ultimately destroy our faith and to take us out and why ultimately he's after that and what he ultimately wants to get us to do is to curse God, okay? And this is gonna, it's, it's not, it's, it's about a chapter's worth. I don't know how many verses we got here. Maybe, maybe 20, 20 to, 20 to 30 verses. So if it helps even, like, close your eyes, okay? Don't have to. But if it helps, just close and just, just listen. Listen to this scene in heaven that, again, is regarding Job, who's just a man, like you and I. And remember, Job doesn't know that this is going on. Job has no idea that this is going on. But this is what's actually going on in heaven. Okay? Job chapter 1, starting in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, and he said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. That word walking is the same word that gets translated prowling here in the text in First Peter. Um, and from walking, prowling up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man, upright, an upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. What's Satan ultimately after? He's trying to destroy Job's faith, but what does he want to get him to do in destroying that faith? He wants to get Job to curse God, to speak evil of God. Verse 12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. So Satan has to get permission from God. This is important, okay? But God here gives him permission. He says, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Is he going to curse God? Verse 20. When Job arose, he tore his robe 
and he shaved his head and he fell on the ground and he worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then he says, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The story's still not over, beginning in chapter 2. And there was another day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from prowling around on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man, upright, who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will, what? Curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Have you ever had poison ivy really bad? When I was little, I think I used to be allergic to it. And whenever I read this story, all I can remember is I had this one time when I was little. I had poison ivy, like, from my knee down on both legs, just the whole way around. And I can still, uh, I still want to itch just, just thinking about it. And now Satan has struck Job's physical body, and he's covered in this stuff from head to toe. And all he's got left is sitting in the ash heap, itching this stuff. Verse 9, and and this is what's so interesting. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? And listen what she says. Listen how now where Satan had been roaring as a lion, attacking Job, now he comes in as a snake through his wife. And hear me, I'm not saying anything about our wives. There have been many husbands who have discouraged their wives, and there are sometimes many wives that discourage their husbands, okay? So spouses, you can... We can both play this role in our marriages. But then here comes Satan through his wife. It says, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? And here's why I say that Satan has now gotten in the ear of his wife because here's, what, here's her advice to Job. Don't hold fast your integrity. Curse God and die. Sound familiar? The same thing that Satan was ultimately after. But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And then again it says, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. That's Job 1 and 2. You guys still with me? You still awake? Did anybody close their eyes? Okay, wake back up. I know I gave you, took a little nap there. But I, you know, sometimes guys, it's just, it's good just to read the word. There's nothing else I can really say. But Job, in the midst of all this trauma, how did he resist the devil? He falls to the ground and he worships. And let me say very practically, guys, um, there's a reason 
why every week when you come here, yeah, you might just think it's random or you might just think, well, it's just, this is what you do in church, but there's a reason why we sing at the beginning and we sing at the end. It's because this is one of the ways that we resist the devil. And I, I think it's very, very fitting that the last song we sang before I even started this sermon was just that song, King of My Heart, one of my favorites, and I love the chorus because it's so simple. You are good, good, oh, I, I know every time I try to sing it doesn't go well, but what I love about it is it's so simple. Guys, just because um, something's simple or just because it's not profound doesn't mean it's not powerful. In fact, I would argue that while Job is sitting there in the ash heap having lost everything that he has, including his kids, with boils from the crown of his head to the, the sole of his foot, scraping himself with a piece of pottery, trying to relieve some of the ministry, I doubt, I highly doubt that he was, you know, spewing out these, these academically impressive theological terms. But when he says that he fell to the ground and he worshiped, he probably couldn't think of anything else other than just, I, God, I, 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 I don't know what to say. You're good. You're good. Oh, <laughs> you're good. You're good. So guys, when we, when we come in here and we worship, it's a way of us resisting the prowling lion and all that he wants to do um, together. And then Peter, he gives us another little clue here as to how we're to resist him. He adds this. He says, we're to resist him firm in our faith, but then knowing, so there's something specific he wants us to know, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, why does he say this? Like in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their difficulty, in the midst of them being aware because he's just told them and just made them aware that the enemy is trying to destroy him. He goes, don't forget, one of the ways I want you to resist the devil is by remembering that you're not in this battle alone. That there's other people going through the same thing. And I don't know about you, but when I'm going through difficulty, one of the things I say a lot is, why me? This only happens to me. One of the little phrases, and this is, this is, I'm being very transparent here, and my wife will totally say yes and amen to this, but one of the little phrases that I'll literally say sometimes when I begin to whine, begin to complain, is I'll say, I'll say this little phrase, and I'll fit it in in little sentences. I'll, I'll, I'll say, everybody else, and I'll say, everybody else has this, or everybody else isn't going through this, or everybody else is, and sometimes she'll just look at me and go, Everybody else, huh? Everybody else. We forget that in our suffering, whatever we're suffering, there's no temptation that's overtaken us which is not common to man, meaning that we're not, we're not suffering alone. One of, the, uh, one of my, my favorite stories, uh, real-life story that took place was during the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, if you guys are familiar at all with, you know, the history of the American Civil War, during the Battle of Gettysburg, um, Gettysburg was a massive battle. Again, it wasn't the war, it was just a battle within the war, but just at the Battle of Gettysburg, 50,000 men lost their lives on both the Union and Confederate side. And so with a battle that big, 
uh, there, were, there were many battles within the battles, you know. There were little fights going, going on within the battle of Gettysburg where 50,000 people um, died. And one of the battles that took place is the battle that's called um, uh, the Defense of Little Big Top. The Defense of Little Big Top. And uh, I don't know if you guys ever watched that old, uh, there's an old documentary that TNT did. Well, I say old, it's probably like 20, 25 years old. I think it was done in the 90s sometime. Um, it's kind of like a little mini-series about the Battle of Gettysburg, and this is one of my favorite scenes from it. But the battle, or the defense of Little Big, a big Top, um, within this Battle of Gettysburg, within the context of the bigger of the bigger Civil War, was led by this colonel named Joshua Chamberlain, who was a Union officer from uh, New England, um, and he led the 20th Maine Infantry Regiment. Um, and they were, the battle line was drawn, and they were at the very end of the battle line, and they were on this, this hill, little, little Big Top, it was called. And, uh, and if the um, Confederate forces could break through at this end, they were going to be able to get through and gain a strategic advantage, and everything was going was to be lost. And so they were, the Confederates were hitting them hard all day long. And, uh, and finally to the place where Joshua Chamberlain and his um, regiment had run out of ammunition. It was, they had nothing else left. And uh, I don't know if it was exactly like this. I mean, it, it, it is true, but I love like, like in the movie, um, they're like, you know, what are we going to do now? Like, surely we have to retreat now. Like, we're, we're, we're out of ammunition. And Joshua Chamberlain, the leader of these men, he just says, nope, fix your bayonets. And so they stick those, you know, sharp, pointy, you know, knives on the end of their, on the end of their rifles and and when they came up again to attack, you know, they knew that they were running low on ammo. They all swing down in line with nothing left but their, but their bayonets. I mean, they were literally taking a, taking a knife to a gunfight now. Um, but his determination to, to not give up, and even when they ran out of ammunition, to fix those bayonets and to swing down the hill is finally what broke the Confederates uh, back. And they, and they withdrew, and they kind of won that little, that little battle within the battle within within the war. Um, and I think what Peter's saying here in verse 8, in, or I'm sorry, verse 9, in remembering other people as they're suffering, as we're suffering, is that one of the things that helps us to fight the good fight of faith uh, or to stand firm in our faith, uh, as Peter says here, is remembering that, you know, as we're fighting our little battle, as we're defending our little hill, our little big top, um, Guys, your, your battle is not meaningless. Your faithfulness in the midst of temptation, whatever that temptation is, it is not meaningless. And it's just a little battle within the bigger battle within, within the war. And sometimes we forget that our faithfulness matters. Um, and one of the reasons that we need to f defend our little, our little round top is because our brothers and sisters throughout the world, uh, they're doing their part to defend their little round top, to defend their little hill as well. Um, and even when you feel like you don't have much left, like you just come back, you put on the bayonet, and you swing down the hill, and you just give it, and you just give it all that you got. And sometimes in the midst of suffering, not sometimes, but most of the time, the thing that we ask is, why? Why? Why are we going why are we going through this? And it's in that moment that we have to, again, preach the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves that if God was not good, if God was not good, we at least know one thing, that 
a mean God, a not good God, would not send his son to die for his enemies. But that's exactly what our God did. And so if he did that, sometimes you just need to come back to the, the, the least common denominator. That, that, what, what do I at least know, you know? In the midst of suffering and pain, sometimes we get so confused, we lose our bearings. But here's what we know for sure, is that only a good God would send his son to die for his enemies. Um, and we preach the gospel to ourselves, we fix that bayonet, and we swing down the hill. And we fight, knowing that we're not, that we're not fighting alone, and that it matters. And finally here, verse 10, and this is just, you know, where Peter's really going to bring it home now with the gospel, is that, yes, we've got this enemy. Yes, he's, he's intense. He's big. He's too big for us. He's a prowling, roaring lion. Um, and we need to resist him, and sometimes we don't know how, but we can't run. We've got to fight. But, man, here's some more ammunition for us to fight, though. Here's a reload. Okay, verse 10. Just a sheer, unadulterated, unconditional promise. Okay, There are many conditional promises in the Bible, and there's even been some conditions here that, you know, like, yes, we need to resist him, we need to stand firm. But here, like here, verse 10, verse 10 is just God doing what God does. Okay? This is good news. He says, and after you have suffered a little while, why does he say a little while? Isn't that kind of annoying? Like, I kind of got annoyed by that when I read that. Because, like, when you're suffering, and if you're suffering and you're still in the midst of suffering, no suffering seems like just a little while, right? Seems like a long while when you're in pain. But what he's reminding us here is it, it's going to come to an end. It's going to end. And I want to remind you guys this morning that if you're in the midst of suffering right now, if you're in the midst of a difficult season, look at me. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, guys, it's going to end. It's not going to last forever. It is not going to last forever. It might mean you dying. It might, and I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but like this is what the Bible calls us to, Revelation chapter 12, that we overcome them by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, for they love not their lives unto death. It might, but the suffering is not going to last forever. It is just going to be a little while. And after a little while, after we've suffered a little while, the God of all, what? Grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. Here's what he's going to do. Love these words. He's going to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Let me read it again. God is going to do this. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it is an unconditional promise. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I know it's at the end of my sermon and your brains might be fried and we don't have time to go into a bunch of Greek words here, okay, and do a bunch of studies, but just very quickly, at least this first one. He says that this word restore, it's the word katartizo, it's the same word that's used in the Gospels for when Jesus walked by and he calls the disciples and they're sitting by the sea and it says that they're mending their nets. They're like sewing, they're, they're fishermen, they're sewing their nets back together. It's very detailed, like they're putting them back together so that there's no holes in it so that the net is whole, so that no fish slip through. That's the same word here, that God is going to come, and he's going to take you, and he's aware of every single detail in your life, and guys, he's going to mend you. He's going to make you whole. He's go How many of you feel like you got some holes in your nets this morning? Some holes in your soul, you're like, stuff's slipping through, Lord. I don't know what you want me to do. God promises you this morning, he's going to mend you. He's going to restore you. That's good news, Amen. 
So much that could be said about that. That secondly, he's going to confirm you. It's the idea of like, he's going to take you from quicksand and he's going to set you up on something solid, on a big solid rock. You might feel when you're suffering that there's nothing underneath you, that you feel like you're sinking and you're sinking and you're sinking and you're sinking and you're about to drown. He is going to pick you up. You are not going to stay there forever and he's going to put something firm under your feet. Thirdly, he's going to strengthen you, it says. This word, it's the idea of, of adding weight and strength to your, to your life, okay? My boys right now, um, uh, well, at least with the, I still like wrestling with the younger ones, okay? Because they can't hurt me. But the bigger ones are like, you know, they, they jump off the couch just like they used to jump off the couch when they were six. And now that they're 12 and 14, it hurts, okay? And so it's like, like, but here's the idea, is that there's more weight to them now. They have more girth to them. And that's the idea of what he's saying here is that like God is taking you through this suffering. He's going to mend you. He's going to restore you. He's going to make you whole. He's going to take you out of the quicksand, set you upon the rock. But he's also adding weight to your life. And here's why it's so awesome is that, guys, God doesn't want you to piggyback forever on somebody else's testimony. Okay? Here's what he wants to do. He wants to give you your own testimony. He wants to give you your own story about how he's delivered you. And absolutely, the word of God is sufficient. And we can look at people like Job and people like Paul and, and man, everybody. And read Hebrews 11, who went around in caves and in holes in the ground and were sawn in two and, and went through all sorts of suffering. Yes, we can go to that, but God wants to work that same type of story in your life. But here's how he's going to do it. He's going to do it by allowing you to suffer, allowing the devil to give you his best shot, and then he's going to bring you out of that and he's going to set you upon a firm foundation and he's adding weight to your life. Does that make sense? I know it doesn't feel like it. It just feels like you're sinking. But I am telling you, if you'll just believe this this morning, it's an unconditional promise. He is going, he is going to do this. And when he does, just like my boys that are now bigger, like, you're going to have some weight that when you go to tackle the devil next time, in somebody else's life to help somebody else out, you're going to be able to take them out because you've been through it. But you got to go through it. And then lastly, he's, he's going to establish you. It's just the idea, he, like immovable. Once you're here, immovable. He, Romans chapter 5, that, you know, he's doing something in us. This suffering produces character, and character produces hope. There's a weight to us. And guys, he has called us, he has called us to himself, okay? Romans chapter eight, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also, he also glorified. Uh, worship to him, you can come up, and, and we'll begin to close, okay? Um, just, just one more image. Is... When, you, when you're suffering, when things are hard, th this is how I think about it sometimes. I don't know if you've ever felt like this, and I'm not, I'm not a real poetic guy, but I'll, I'll try to explain this as best I can, is that sometimes when I'm going through difficulty, the way I feel is I feel like I'm locked in a box or in a very small room. 
and it's cold, and it's dark, and it's damp, and I can't really see very well. And, but you go over to the door, and you see that there's a lock on the door, but it's, it's a combination lock, like these numbers on it. And it's like, man, if I can just, if I can just get, the, get this thing unlocked, like I'm going to be able to, then I can unlock it, and you know, that's what's holding the door shut, and I'll be able to swing it open and get, and get out of here. Um, and so we try and we try to, you know, get the right combination to get this, to get this right. And, and one of the things that when we're suffering, I don't know about if you guys play this game, but, but, that, but that's how I feel, is like, I'm in this dark room and I'm trying to plug in all the right combinations, but here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. If, if I can just like, Lord, how much do you need me to pray? Is it like half hour, 45 minutes? Just five minutes more than what I'm already doing? Lord, how much Bible do you need me to read? Lord, do I need to read an extra chapter today? That's another, that's another combination. Lord, do, if, if, do I need to make that phone call and you know, do I need to try to do my best? Like, do I need to take my efforts and try to mend that broken relationship or, or fix this? And then, then, then will the suffering go, go away? Is that the right, is that the right combination? Um, maybe if I do a little bit more. Maybe if I serve a little bit more. Maybe if I, if I give a little bit more. Make a little bit extra effort. Is that going to be the right combination? And then the lock will come off and then the door will swing open and then I'll finally get out of this? And... And guys, all those things, I don't know if you play that game at all or not, but I play that game in my mind all the time. That if I can just do the right thing, then the suffering will end. But here's what Peter's saying in verse 10. Here's the best way I can put it. Is that what he's saying in verse 10 is that we are not going to be delivered by just plugging in the correct combination. But that we are going to be delivered by Christ himself. And, and I say that for this very practical reason, all that we've talked about this morning, is that if you're living a life this morning and you f- where you're in the midst of a difficult season and you feel like you're locked in and you're trying your best to do everything right so that God will just take this away, I just want to set you free this morning and remind you that it's not about you and getting the right combination. But in his timing, after just a little while, I don't know when that is, but it's just going to be a little while. He will come, and he will deliver you, and he will set you free. Amen? Father, thanks for this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. And God, I just ask that, Lord, for those that are in the midst of a season of suffering and difficulty this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would give them strength to resist the devil, but that you would also give them strength to believe you and to trust you and to know that you're good. But Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, would you please soon come and would you restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish them for the sake of your beautiful name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.